Take just a second, if you will, and open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to, again, change the order a little bit this morning. I want to take a few minutes and uh, put us in the Word, put us in our text for the day. And then we'll come together and have another time of worship here in a few minutes. And then we'll come back into the Word again before we uh, come to the table. I love a well-written story. Um, And I think all of us do, even if we may not appreciate the skill of the writer to put all those words and to use that craft and that art in such a way. But all of us, when we read or hear a good story, know it. And there's elements to that that are present in all of those well-written stories that we may or may not recognize, but but they're there, and they make that story what it is. Um, last summer, I read again. I had read portions of it off and on, but I read again the Lord of the Rings, the the full single-volume set that J.R.R. Tolkien had. He had originally designed the book to be one volume. It came out in three volumes. It took him 12 years to write it. It still is one of the best-selling books of all time, but I love The Lord of the Rings. Not only is there the major plot of the story that we're familiar with, okay? The, the, the Dark Lord Sauron creates this one ring of power, and he gives other rings to, to men and to dwarves and to elves, but this one ring of power is the ring that controls it all. And so the whole, the whole story, the epic, is designed around how do we confront that evil, how is that evil confronted, and in the end conquered. So there's that that main theme that kind of works its way through that. And there's this saga, you know, of these heroes. They're kind of reluctant heroes, really, but they're the heroes who work their way through this amazing epic. Um, And think about it for just a second. Think about the characters of that story, all right? So there is overarching, there's this dark Lord Sauron. There's the darkness and the evil, that eye that's there present all the time, and those who oppose him. And then we go from that into the Shire, you know, into this humble little place that all of us would want to live, I think. At least I would. It's just such an attractive place to live. And, and, and then you have Bilbo Baggins, and you have Gandalf the Wizard. So there's that relationship that threads its way throughout Gandalf. You know, Bilbo continues to make these appearances throughout, right? Then you have Frodo and Samwise. And their relationship and their part of the saga, their story within the story, you have that. Then you have Mary and you have Pippin and their account and what they're doing in the forest. And so you have that going on. And then you have Aragorn and Boromir and you have Legolas and Gimli. You have, if you don't know what I'm talking about, what rock have you been living under, okay? I mean, there's at least a movie there, okay? So all of these are threading their way through. It's just stunning, to see the way all of these subplots are supporting that main plot and how these relationships within that story are being played out to the end that the author designed. I mean, it's going in the direction that Tolkien wanted it to go and the genius of the way he wrote it and thread that together. Think about the Bible for just a second. If there's one major theme in The Lord of the Rings, you know, that overcoming the darkness and somehow conquering uh, the dark Lord Sauron. Think about the Bible for just a second. I I posted this question last night, and I know some of you people had read it. How would you summarize the message of the Bible in one sentence? And I don't mean a Pauline Ephesians 1 run-on sentence, okay, that lasts for a page. That's not the sentence I'm talking about. How would you summarize the message of the Bible in one brief sentence? Gary and I were talking about this morning before the service. I found some examples of that. Let me give you a couple of them. The Bible tells us how the loving creator God restored a lost humanity and cosmos through reestablishing his rule through Jesus Christ and the provision of life to his honor and glory. Eh, Okay, I mean, that's all right. But Mark Dever put it in a Dever way. God has made promises to bring his people to himself, and he's fulfilling those promises through Christ. That, that's a pretty good summary of it, okay? One writer said, God glorifies himself in the redemption of sinners. That's okay, but if you're going to have a conversation with someone who's not churched, doesn't understand church language, um, that 
that may not be real helpful if you're having a conversation at the water fountain. Well, here's what this big book is all about. I love the one that Doug Wilson said. Now, it's a little long, Gary. This is 66 words. You and I were talking this morning. Gary had a, had a professor in school that said, if your sentence is longer than 25 words, I'm going to mark you off, even if it's true. All right? Even if it's, even if it's a, a, an accurate point, you're getting marked off for a sentence longer than 25. This one has 66 words and a lot of commas. All right? <laughs> Scripture tells us the story of how a garden, the garden in the beginning, is transformed into a garden city. So that's not bad. A garden in the beginning, a garden city, that, that city coming down from heaven in Revelation. So, Scripture tells us the story of how a garden is transformed into a garden city. But only after a dragon had turned that garden into a howling wilderness, a haunt of owls and jackals, which lasted until an appointed warrior came to slay the dragon giving us life in the process, with his blood affecting the transformation of the wilderness into a garden city. I like, you know, I like the, the artsy way he puts that, but it's too long. Andreas Kostenberger, who taught at Southeastern Seminary, um, summarized it this way. And he didn't write this, by the way. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's 25 words. Perfect. It is perfect. It's, it's not because Kostenberger wrote it either. So how would you summarize the Bible in one sentence? Well, all those are, are, are good attempts at it. This major theme of transformation, reversal, all of that, taking the garden and turning it back into an even better garden in the end, all of those have themes and subplots that work their way through, right? The Bible has those. And one of the best places to see those themes summarized is in 1 Samuel in chapter 2 where Hannah prays this prayer. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in her prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it kind of is a roadmap for everything that's going to follow. And she has in there the ideas of protection, of reversal, of judgment. Right? Of, of God working in that way to bring about his retribution and to rescue his people. And the, here's how she ends her prayer. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces, and against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Long before a king is introduced in Samuel, this woman whose situation is reversed by God, talks about God giving a king, and that king is going to be exalted in strength and in power. God is going to take care of his anointed. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, it does not look like God is doing a very good job of that. It just doesn't look like the Lord's anointed is exalted at all. In fact, he's on the run for his life, and he's in a season of his life where that's what happens day in and day out. What'd you do today, David? Well, I ran from Saul. What'd you do last week, David? Well, I was on the run from Saul. I escaped from him. That's how his life is going in this season of his life. And it's summarized in, in chapter 21 in verse 10. David rose and fled that day from Saul. As he did every day. For a lot of days. So it does not look like the Lord's anointed is being very well cared for, all right? It doesn't look like his, his strength is being exhibited or his horn, his power is, is being made clear. So how do you make sense of what is one of the strange chapters in this book? How do we make sense of what we read in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel? Because it's not easy to read, and it's even harder to understand. There's some confusing things in here. Where you come away from it, I think, with more questions than you do answers. Why did that happen? Why did the priest ask him that question? And we're not given an answer. But underlying all of this, in the craziness of what we see in chapter 21, is this. God takes care of his anointed. He provides and protects his people. 
And he does that to the end that he has designed and purposed. God takes care of his people. God takes care of his anointed. So, let's look at chapter 21 for just a minute. All right? I think it's on page 244, if I looked right, in your pew Bible. If you don't have a a printed copy, I encourage you to pick up a pew Bible and follow along on the page. It says... David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young man have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For for I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. What in the world is this? What in the world is going on here? We see David desperate, and we see God providing for him in this passage of Scripture. But there's just a lot going on here that, man, it's just confusing on a first read through it. And by the way, it's confusing still on a 50th read through it. All right? It's just, there's some things here that are just kind of weird. We see David on the run again. Now, Shiloh, the place of worship, was destroyed early in Samuel. The Philistines destroyed it. And evidently it's been moved now to this place called Nob, which is, which is in that region, just south of there. And the tabernacle has been relocated there. Later on in the passage, it's called the city of the priests. So this is where people go to worship. David goes to the house of worship. He goes to the place where God is worshipped, where the priests are serving. So David's on the run again, as we see. And we see something else we've seen before in Samuel, which is trembling again. Ahimelech, it says, is shocked to see David come in by himself. And he trembles as he meets David. The word literally means to be filled with terror. By the way, Ahimelech's great-great-grandfather, Eli, trembled, same word, when the ark was captured. The Israelites trembled, same word, when they confronted Goliath and the Philistines. So there's a pattern of trembling. But here he's trembling because David comes in in an unusual way. He's by himself. This is the commander of Saul's armies. He has this reputation of being a mighty warrior and leading Saul's best men, kind of the Delta Force leader. And he comes in by himself. And it wouldn't be, I don't think, very different from you walking into Walmart and seeing the vice president or president walking in there in shorts and a T-shirt, trying to be incognito. You know, no secret service, no sunglasses, no earpieces. Like, what is going on? Something's not right about this. So here comes David by himself, and the priest is fearful. What's going on? We have trembling again. We also have fabrication again. We've had it before. Jonathan and David had fabricated this account in the previous chapter to... To kind of bring Saul out and see what's going on in Saul's heart. Michael, Saul's daughter, had fabricated a story. Well, here, 
And, and some commentators try to make this shine in better light than what I think it deserves. But you see, David says, I'm on a secret mission. I'm sorry, but my visual there is the Blues Brothers with their sunglasses and their ties. We're on a mission from God. Forgive me, that's just where my brain went. I can't help it. It's polluted and it just has not been whitewashed yet. So David says, I'm on a mission from God, me and my boys. I can't tell you about it or I'll have to what? Thank you. So this story comes from David. The king has charged me. Now, some commentators will say, well, the king he's talking about is God. He's on a, he is literally on, no, uh, I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. The king has charged me with a matter that I cannot tell anyone about. I'm to meet my young men at such and such a place and, and we are hungry. We need something to eat. And Ahimelech says, the only bread I have here is the, what's called the bread of presence in the tabernacle. There is the table of showbread, and there are 12 loaves of bread there representing the 12 tribes of Israel. God had commanded Moses in how this was to be constructed and baked and presented. It's there throughout the week. Each Sabbath, fresh bread replaces it, and the priest, and only the priest, according to Levitical law, can eat that bread. And Himalek says, this is all I've got, is this, the bread of the presence. He calls it holy bread. He calls it the bread of presence, which is what it is. He says, that is all I have. And he offers it to David with this question, with this kind of, I have, I have no common bread here. There's holy bread. If the young men have, young men have kept themselves from women. If they've not had relationships with women, had sex with women is the question there. Because according to the Levitical law, that, that sexual relationship made that person temporarily unclean. The body fluids and the things, the life that's exhibited in that, symbolized in that. Anyway, the priest asked that question. Why, why all of a sudden that question? Given that bread should not even be an option. But it is. If the young men have done this. And David's answer is, well, of course they've not been with women. We're on this mission. My men are always focused on the mission when we're on an expedition, especially this one. These imaginary guys, whoever they are. So he answers the question and the priest gave him the holy bread. It says there in verse six, the bread of presence. And so David receives this bread and and he's so what's going on here? Why would the priest do that? Well, we're not told why he does it. Later on, though, I believe in the, in, in the Gospels, when Jesus goes to this account, again, we're not told why, but we're told what for. We're told how significant it is. Because earlier in the account, when Saul had been anointed as king, do you remember he was going up to Bethel to worship and he was given three loaves of bread? God was taking care of his anointed. When Saul went to that dinner with Samuel, he was given the priest portion of the meat. God's taking care of his anointed. And here, David, as the anointed, not yet publicly proclaimed as the king, is being taken care of. And David is receiving this bread, this bread of great significance. So God is taking care. He's providing for his anointed. Now turn over to the Gospels. Turn over to Luke chapter 6. You could go to Matthew. You could go to Mark. In Luke chapter 6, there's this account. Starting in verse 1, on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, 
The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew adds this one sentence in between that. If you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He says that in Matthew 12, 7. The Pharisees are looking for a debate. They're looking for a fight. They're looking for a way to entrap Jesus, just as Saul is looking for a way to defeat David. And so they confront Jesus on this occasion And Jesus' response is to do the same thing that he always does with the Pharisees, which is take control of the conversation and turn it on its head. He says, have you not read the Bible? Have you not read the Old Testament scriptures? Well, of course they've read it. But he says, do you not understand what you read? And clearly they don't. Because he's saying, I'm just doing, my disciples are doing what David did. Jesus does not condemn He does not put David in any negative light. He simply says, David came in and requested that bread and the priest gave it to him. Ahimelech, unbeknownst to him, is serving the king. And he may have known that David was anointed, it doesn't say. And he is not letting the law get in the way of honoring the king. He is not letting the law, if you will, take precedent over God's king. And Jesus is saying, David, in some way, had authority in that case. Ahimelech recognized that, I believe, and gave him the bread. And Jesus is calling attention to that by saying, one greater than David is here. I am Lord over the Sabbath. He uses that phrase, son of man, just as the scriptures point us to him as the son of David. So the son of David calls himself the son of man and claims authority at least as greater, greater than David, even greater than the law, greater than the Sabbath. And so David gives us a perspective on what David is doing. Excuse me. Jesus gives us a perspective on what David is doing here. Jesus had authority over the Sabbath. David exercises and receives the care of the priest in that place. He recognizes in David some authority. I don't think Ahimelech would have given this to just any Joe that walked in there. He gives it to David. David is desperate and God provides. Do you think David maybe had this in mind when he says later on, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies? I think maybe so. Now look at what comes next in 1 Samuel. You have David's desperation and God's provision. Here you have David and the Philistines, in the Philistines, with the Philistines, captured by the Philistines in some way, and he's protected by God. Oh, by the way, did you see that Doeg, the Edomite, is there kind of hiding in the shadows in verse 7? We'll see him again in the next chapter, and it will not be a good thing. So David rose that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Gath is the Philistine city where this guy named Goliath was from. And oh, by the way, David comes into the city that day, the home of Goliath, the hometown hero who was killed by David. And David is wearing the sword that Goliath wore. Did you see up there? Not only did David... So here's this... Here's this um, warrior with no weapons. Here's this commander of the Delta Force with no arms, no weapons. I mean, Jack Bauer opens his trunk and he's got an arsenal back there. Right? David's got nothing. The story's just not adding up. I hope you see that. It's just, no, that's, David should have had a weapon if he's on a mission from the king. But he doesn't, and the priest says, all I have is Goliath's sword. David says, there's none like it, give it to me. So he comes into Gath wearing David's sword. Verse 11, the servants of Achish, who is the the king of Gath there, said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took those words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. 
And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you brought this fellow to behave like a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? I mean, that's the rhetorical question, and the answer is no. He's not going to come into my house. And the king of Gath, Achish, lets him go. So you have David walking into this hometown of Goliath, this Philistine city, on the run from Saul. What in the world is he thinking? I think part of what he may be thinking is, at least in the back of my mind, I'm thinking Saul has not exhibited himself to be very aggressive when it comes to confronting the enemy. Now he'll fling his spear in a heartbeat at his son or at David. But he's the one who lurked in the back when Goliath was out there. So David thinks, I'm safer among the enemy than I am with the king. And he goes to the one place where it seems Saul would not go look for him, which is in the Philistine city. So the good news is he's outside of Saul's dominion, but the bad news is it seems that he's taken by them in some way because later on, as we'll read in the Psalms, he is held by them. In fact, it says here that he was in their hands. So in some way, he's held captive. Do you remember the song that they heard? I don't know how they heard it, but in some way they've heard this song, this folk song that's been going around Israel, that Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. When they heard that in Israel, the Israelites thought David is becoming the champion instead of Saul. But now the Philistines, unbeknownst to them, are saying something that's truer than they have any imagination that it could be true, that indeed he is the king in the land. He's not been announced yet, but he's been anointed. In God's eyes he is, but not in the eyes of anybody else. But they've heard of his success, they've seen his success And David is not incognito. He's recognized. And he's taken by them. And there's one time in 1st and 2nd Samuel that I have, as I was looking through this and studying, this is the only time that we hear of David being in terror or being much afraid. The King James Version says, sore afraid. Remember that word? The shepherds were out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and it says, Behold, they were sore afraid, terrorized. David is terrorized by what's going on here. And yet he's walked into it. This is where he has chosen to be. This is where he's run. He's very much afraid. So what does he do? Well, in verse 13, he doesn't plead insanity, but he plays it. All right, I don't know if this is, you know, the first biblical account of that particular defense mechanism in a court of law, but David doesn't plead insanity, he plays insane. And he changes his behavior before them and pretends to be insane. He lets spit and drool run down his beard. He claws against the gate. Some interpreters say he's making graffiti on the gate, saying bad things about the king or whatever. Who knows what exactly is going on here. But clearly Achish in the city of Gath is like a jar of planters nuts. He said, I got plenty of nuts here. I don't need any more. And he buys it. He, he, whatever David is playing, his acting, what he's doing. And honestly, Susan, and I've, I've talked about this. I think he's cunning. I think he's shrewd as a serpent is the term that Susan used here. I think it's amazing to see David turning into an amateur actor. And it works. <laughs> it works. He succeeds in stirring in the king a mixture, I think, of pity and disdain. This guy is pitiful and he's disgusting. And I do not want him around. And he lets him go. Is it that simple? Is it just as simple as he just feigns insanity and he walks out the front door? Is this what it looks like for the Lord to give strength to his king? And anoint the horn of his anointed or exalt the horn of his anointed? Is this what it... God's deliverance looks crazy, doesn't it? Literally. Saul trusted in his spear, right? Sleeps with it, I think. David went into battle with Goliath with just a sling. 
And here he's delivered by spit. God works in extraordinary ways, doesn't he? I mean, that's crazy. The only thing that's crazier than that is the cross. Hmm. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. Over in your New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll just read a portion of it there, starting in verse 18. In verse 17, Paul says, Paul didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with some kind of eloquent words of wisdom, but just just the words of the cross. That's where the power is. And he says in verse 18, the word of the cross is folly or foolishness is how it's translated in some modern translations. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, he says in verse 25, is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, God chooses what is weak to shame the strong. He reverses the situation of the helpless so that they are delivered. So God can save his anointed with a sling or with spit. Because God is going to see his story to an end. And he promises that we can be sure that we are kept in his hands. God, thank you for the illustration of these truths in David's life. Thank you for the confirmation of David's anointing and of his authority through the words of Jesus. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to now look to the rest of your word um, to see how this might apply to our lives. God, we thank you for your firm hand holding your people in your grip of grace. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this place today or hears this that's never trusted in Jesus as their Savior, as their champion, that, Father, the foolishness of the cross would be revealed as the glory of your grace. And they would see the Son of God hanging there, paying the price that our sin deserves. They would see you, Lord, reversing his death and raising him to life so that we then, God, could be declared right, righteous before you. Thank you, Lord, for the message of your word in that. And we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. To understand, how is it that we understand these difficult passages that we find in the Bible sometimes? I mean, you can pull out commentaries, you can pull out Bible study helps, you might have a study Bible that you use that, that helps you with those. If those are good resources, they are going to point you, listen to this, to other passages of Scripture. Because the basic hermeneutical principle that I think how you study the Bible and how you discern and learn and apply the Bible is let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let the Bible interpret itself to you. And that is especially the case in a difficult passage like 1 Samuel chapter 21. So thankfully, Jesus helps us understand what's going on in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, and so does David. Because underlying the story that we see in 1 Samuel 21 is the story, if you will, of what's going on in David's heart, what's going on in David's prayer life, what's going on in David's praises, okay? 
And we see this if we look in the Psalms and two specific Psalms that come directly from 1 Samuel chapter 21. So David has an opportunity to reflect on, think on, pray through what it is that God has done for him. And I find it interesting that David doesn't say, I can't believe how well I was thinking on my feet. How quick I was, how quick witted I was. I can't believe I pulled that off as an amateur actor. That's not what David says or does. His praise goes to the Lord. His credit goes to God. Because in David's crisis of faith, that was where he naturally went. So these songs of David give us the story that's underneath the story. All right. David is having a crisis of faith. We must not lose sight of that truth, that reality. He's in a season that lasts years that are as hard as any of his life. He's being, un, he's being attacked by an enemy in authority, with power, with people, and he's being attacked for seemingly no reason as far as David sees it. It's unprovoked as far as David understands it. In Psalm 56, turn there. We're going to look at two psalms for just a minute. Psalm 56 and the one that Matthew read a portion of, Psalm 34. The descriptions that come before these psalms are important. Because they help us understand historically how the church has seen this. And biblically how it's relevant to what's being said. So Psalm 56 says, to the choir master, this is a song, it's a, it's a song of praise. And there's, there's musical terms here that nobody seems to understand exactly what they mean. According to the dove of far-off terebinths, a mitcom, those are musical terms that maybe the tune that was being sung, whatever, the mitcom is the type of song that it is. But notice here what it says, this is, this is a mitcom of David. When the Philistines seized him in Gath. It's important we recognize that. He walked into that city wearing Goliath's sword. But he was seized. He was taken prisoner in some way. And these are the words that David pours out of his heart under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Looking on that time in his life, on that event. Be gracious to me, O God. For man tramples on me. He is having a crisis of faith. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So pauses in the middle of that crying out to God and he preaches to himself. I trust God. I trust his word. Heart, don't be afraid. What can flesh do to me? But then there's this cry again. Verse 8, all day long they injure my cause. Excuse me, verse 5. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. They have waited for my life. I wonder if he sees Doeg standing in the corner. As he says, verse 6, they lurk. They watch my steps. They're waiting for my life. For their crimes, will they escape? Oh, he says, no, in wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. So David is having a crisis of faith. And this is legit, and we need to recognize the reality of it. All of us, in our frailty and in our humanity, say, yeah, I can amen that. There's a crisis of faith. What's unusual about David is he is humble enough to say it. Oh, that that spirit of humility would be ours. To just be willing to acknowledge, I'm in a crisis right now. I'm struggling. My soul's in a dark place. David's crisis of faith. His cries for deliverance. He, he cries out here to himself and, and, and to the Lord here in Psalm 56. But he does it with confidence. Look at what he says in verse 8. You keep count of my tossings. Or you keep count of my wanderings. You keep count of how my heart seems to wander. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day that I call. 
This I know that God is for me. And he repeats the same phrase in verse 10 that he did in verse 4. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's, is that not relevant to us? There's nothing that can separate us from God's love. But God is for us. Who can be against us? Right? And so that's what David says. What can flesh, what can man, what can King Achish, what can King Saul do to me? Because I'm trusting in God. And so here he is. He's having this crisis of faith. And he cries out for deliverance. Turn over to Psalm 34. Psalm 56 is more of a a somber crying out. Psalm 34 is more of a lifting up and a word of praise. As as Matthew read it to us, he says, I bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Wait a minute. How does that go together? How is there praise in your mouth and spit running down your beard at the same time? Huh? I, I don't know. But it does. At least as he sits back and reflects on God's faithfulness to him. My soul makes its boast in the Lord, not in my acting ability, not in my cunningness, Not in how quick I am on my feet. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Oh, let the humble hear and be glad. Hey, come together with me, he says of God's people. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So David has a crisis of faith, but here he reminds us that he's crying out for deliverance. And look at what happens. I sought the Lord and he what? He answered me. This poor man cried, verse 6, and the Lord heard him and saved him. He says down in verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. David has this crisis of faith that he writes for us. He puts it in context for us to understand what's going on. So in the midst of this This craziness in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, there seems to be an anchor of the soul in David's heart that's just given him some stability there. I believe the Lord gave him the ability to come up with that crazy idea. I believe God's the one who leads him, as crazy as that sounds. (laughs) But David testified to God's faithfulness through this whole account. And look, his confidence is restored in every way. I sought the Lord and he answered me. This poor man cried, the Lord heard him. The righteous cry for help and the Lord delivers them. Back over in Psalm 58, 56 rather, he says in verse 8 of that passage, he just recounts this, this beautiful picture of God caring for him, counting the tears, holding them in a bottle. God, I trust you. I'm not going to be afraid. So the story of Scripture has this overarching theme that God is going to restore the garden to something greater, right? And God is going to exercise His rule and authority. It's never diminished, but He's going to do it through the Lord Jesus. And He's going to get glory by redeeming rebellious sinners to Himself and putting Jesus on the throne. And the kings of the earth will have and will continue to rail against him, to rebel against him. The Lord just laughs in derision. As for me, he says, I put my king on my throne. Jesus is reigning and ruling. Because he is reigning and ruling, his people will not fail. They won't. Now, we will individually fail. Our church may fail. We will fall on our face repeatedly. The examples of that through Scripture are clear. But God's will will be done. His purposes will be accomplished. And He will finish what He started, right? And we can be absolutely certain of that. That's the story of Scripture. That's the overarching pattern. That's the theme of redemption, reversal, resurrection. And what jumps off the page as you study the life of David is this theme that comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus, fleeing an enemy, going into the wilderness, God providing bread from heaven 
God protecting by extraordinary means the cloud by day and the fire by night. God leading his people through what seems to be hopeless situations, a la the Red Sea. So these connections with the evidence in David's life are critical to understand what's going on here. Like Israel before him, David escapes an evil king who wants to do away with him. Like Israel before him, as David is on the run, God provides. God himself provided the showbread. For David. Like Israel before him, David is protected by God in the most unusual ways. Right? So, you remember we've used the term types before, that the typology of the Bible that gives us pictures, points us clearly to Jesus. We see that in David. We see him in his wilderness wanderings. And this is, by the way, a period of wilderness wandering for David. Commentators point out it's that, that it's really probably not, it, it's significant that a third of the account we have in Samuel is of David on the run. And a third of the gospel accounts is the account of Jesus in that final week of his life, his, his period leading up to the cross. There's just all these parallels here. For David, this picture of God's faithfulness, there's one other place I want us to look before we come to the table here. Turn to John's Gospel. Now listen to what David says as you're turning to John chapter 19. I didn't finish reading Psalm 34. As you're turning to John, listen to this from Psalm 34. In verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. In verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let the Bible Interpret the Bible. David, in talking about the glorious, mysterious, absolutely sufficient protection of God, says, I came away from that account unbroken. Not a bone was harmed. He could have said, not a hair fell off of my head. He says, none of, my, none of the bones were broken. And John reads that, and again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes us straight to the cross. Straight to the cross. In John chapter 19, as he's given us this account of Jesus being crucified on the cross, he reminds us there, and he takes us back. Look at verse 31. In John chapter 19 and verse 31. It's filled with these scriptural references here. Okay? The soldiers crucified Jesus, took his garments, divided them. John points out that was in fulfillment of scripture from Psalm chapter, from Psalm 22. And it says that they came in, in an act of mercy, and that seems crazy to say an act of mercy from the Roman soldiers as someone hangs on the cross, but it was, it was indeed an act of mercy. Verse 31 says, since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture. They will look on him whom they have pierced. 
So the Holy Spirit gives us the connection between Jesus on the cross and David being delivered from the king of Gath. He gives us connection between the safety of David and the sacrifice of Christ. He gives us connection between the sovereign hand of God, seeing that David will not be harmed by the king of Gath. That same sovereign hand that protected David crucified Jesus. Crucified him. Peter tells us that in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So it was according to the plan and purpose of God that David was delivered. It was according to the plan and purpose of God that David didn't get any broken bones. And it was according to the plan and purpose of God that Jesus would hang on the cross. But his bones would not be broken either. So that we see this picture of God's provision and God's plan. This picture of God's protection. This picture of Jesus going to the cross in perfect obedience to the Father. And God's amazing grace in sending him there. So that you and I could be provided for. Protected. And have a place. A place with him in his heaven. As we get ready to come to this table, I want to just invite you to put your trust in this Jesus. And if you have trusted in Christ, I want to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to just restore to you the joy of your salvation, the joy of his salvation in you. Just to amaze us with God's providence, his protection, his provision for us. Just be reminded as we come to this table that he does prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with the oil of gladness. Our cup runs over because of his faithfulness and his just extravagant provision for us. That's how we come to this table. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reminder of the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood. We thank you that we can worship you through the sharing together of this Lord's Supper. This communion meal. We thank you for this picture of your divine protection and deliverance of your people coming out of Egypt. Of that lamb that was spotless that was slain. Of that blood that was spread on the doorpost that death would pass over. Father, we thank you for John reminding us, John the Baptist saying, this is the Lamb of God. So, Father, as we come to this table, we just pray that our eyes would be open to see your glory in the face of Jesus. And we could see the goodness of your grace as we take these, this cup and this, this wafer into our hands. And as we do it, God, help us proclaim Jesus, proclaim the gospel as we share this meal together. And we pray that in Christ's name.